0: You're listening to the Mind Your Business podcast, episode number 94. Today, we're talking all about how to protect yourself before you wreck yourself. Hi, I'm James Wedmore, and I've built a multiple seven-figure internet business that offers the financial freedom to do what I want, when I want And I'm the first to say that hard work and hustle are not essential ingredients for your success. So how do you build a thriving business from the inside out? Now with over 800,000 downloads, this is the Mind Your Business Podcast. All right, hello, ladies and gentlemen, James Wedmore here and welcome to the Mind Your Business Podcast. This is a very special edition because we're doing an interview and it's a good one. It's on a topic that i think is absolutely crucial absolutely essential it is important it is imperative all those fancy words yet unfortunately it's not sexy it's not flashy it's not that five step three secret ninja strategy to 10x your growth kind of conversation but every entrepreneur and business owner needs to hear this this is about protecting you and protecting your business this is the legal conversation of how to be smart as you grow and who else to have a better conversation with than with an actual lawyer and a business owner right so you need to drop everything and listen to this as it was a phenomenal interview and the best part was is it's not gonna scare you it's not gonna freak you out it's not gonna overwhelm you or confuse you Annette Stepanian our special guest just breaks it all down for you makes it easy and digestible and fun and light and doable. And don't ignore this. Don't sit there and say, when I get to this amount of money, when I get the business this level, because this stuff is the foundation and it's so important and so smart. And it's smart to be smart. So who is Annette Stepanian? Well, Annette graduated magna cum laude from the University of Southern California with degrees in business administration and political science. And upon her graduation, she moved straight on to Loyola Law School in L.A., ultimately landing her dream job at a national law firm in San Francisco, where she practiced litigation for over five years. And today, she combines her passions for law and small businesses to teach other creative professionals and entrepreneurs, like you guys, how to streamline and lay a proper legal foundation for their business. And that's exactly what we're going to do today. So let's get into this. Ladies and gentlemen, Annette Stepanian. All right. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Mind Your Business podcast. I'm your host, James Wedmore. And I have with me here today, a very, very special guest, Annette Stepanian. Annette, how are you doing? I am doing fantastic,
1: James. I'm, Thanks
0: for having me. I am so glad you're here. You know, Annette is a lawyer for entrepreneurs and creatives. And we are about to have a topic that might just be the least sexiest topic. You know, some people be like, no, this is boring. I want to hear about how I can make a gajillion dollars on the Internet working two minutes a day. That's not exactly (laughs) what we're going to be talking about today. Yet, however, it is so crucially important, you know, the whole legal protection side. And Annette has got our backs and she's here. I've been doing this for so long, I can't stress how important this is. I mean, this is like going to the dentist. You know, you don't want to talk about it. You don't want to do it, but you know you have to. And so we do want to make this fun. We do want to make it light and easy. You know, there's that analogy that I always think of, which is the most avid buyer of a home alarm system is the person that just got broken into, right? You've heard those stories yeah. behind that. That's when people sign up and purchase a security system. We don't want that to be the case here. Do not wait until something bad happens before you decide I should do something you know, about it. Be preemptive, be proactive, be smart, and also come into this episode feeling light, feeling good, feeling positive. We're not here to make this a fear monger thing. We're not here trying to scare the pants out of you. We're not trying to scare you away from running a business, but it is about being smart. So also to to curb any doubt or skepticism that this is going to be a boring show or episode, it's not. We're going to start it off with a joke. And what better kind of joke than a lawyer joke? Annette, you got... (laughs) Can we make fun of lawyers for a second?
1: Oh, totally. I have to say, I once went to a dinner where the guy across from me proceeded for the entire dinner to spout off lawyer jokes at me. <laughs> it, was, it was entertaining. I mean, I don't know. I guess whatever. I'm, I'm used to it. So let's go for it. You want a good one? Yes, I want a good one. Okay. What's the difference between an accountant and a lawyer?
0: I don't know, Annette.
1: Accountants? No, they're boring. <laughs> <laughs> ha, ha, ha. Okay,
0: <laughs> okay we're not going to be boring, though, here today. And no. now let's start with some good, juicy stuff. I would love to know a little bit of your backstory. How did you get to where you are today, and why do you do yeah, that's- what you do?
1: That's a great question. So, like most people, I went to law school right after undergrad because I didn't know what else to do. And I just, I really wanted a grad degree. And so I went on to law school, loved it. It was a great, you know, intellectual challenge for me. And then went off and started practicing law in San Francisco at a big law firm here. And it was great. On paper, everything was great. I was living in this great city, I was making great money, had my quote unquote dream job. But it was completely miserable. And I knew it kind of came to a head when one day a partner came into my office. She handed me an envelope and she walked out and inside was a letter that said that I was getting a raise. (laughs) And I started bawling because I was just not happy. And I knew no amount of money would make me happy doing this type of work. And so I took a leap of faith. I quit my job. I had no plan in place. I traveled, came back, started my own creative business. It was a jewelry line. And in that process, I started working with a lot of entrepreneurs. We were either collaborating or just, you know, I started kind of mingling in this world that you and I live in and just really saw a need for legal information that was accessible, that was relatable, that was cost-effective and practical and all the good things that, you know, people usually complain about when they go talk to a lawyer. And so basically that's how everything evolved into what I do today. I really am passionate about really instilling people with the confidence that they need and the information that they need so that they can just properly start and grow their businesses. And, you know, to your point, I am not a fear monger at all. I do not enjoy that. I mean, sometimes there's some tough love that comes with it and some tough lessons to be learned when you ignore these things. But I really come from a place of really empowering yourself that an understanding that as a business owner, you have this responsibility and to be proactive about it from the beginning.
0: Yeah, I love it. Well, thank you for sharing that. Now I look at where I'm at and 10 years into this, you know, the more you grow and create, the more you do develop things of like fears of like, wow, there's actually something at stake here. And it feels like you have something to lose where I go back to year one and I was like, well, I got nothing to lose. I got nothing that someone could take away from me. So, you know, do I need all this in place? And so, you know, I've definitely seen in the last couple of years how important it is. And we've made such a stance, especially with Chelsea, my wife, that now we have like a legal team in place and, you know, protecting our intellectual property and having contracts in place and insurances in place. And wow. And I think the number one reason I wanted to bring you in is because I don't want people to wait as long as we did, because it doesn't, I mean, you don't have to wait until you've built up a big business to get this in place. And I've seen too many people where some bad stuff has gone down. And that, you know, again, not trying to be fear, but like, I've seen it drop people to their knees and they can't recover from that. And so from a positive, encouraging, safe place, there are just smart decisions we can start to make. And so I think we want to have that conversation for someone probably in the first year or 18 months or one to two years, you know, where it's probably the solopreneur with maybe an assistant part time. What would you say? Are the first steps? Like, what are some of the first things that people can start to put in place? Or what are the things, the mistakes that they're making that they're not putting in place?
1: That's a great question. I, I love that we're focusing on like the first year or two because that's where I see so many people put it off because they're like, well, I don't have the money or my business is not quote unquote real, or it doesn't feel real to them because it's just something that they're kind of experimenting with maybe. And I cannot tell you how many times people, you know, they'll be in year three, four, and they're like, Oh, I wish I had done this sooner. So I'm glad we're focusing on that group, you know, from the first, first thing, you know, if you can reach out to a lawyer and have some sort of consultation with them. And I say that because they're going to give you, you know, they're going to know your specific facts and circumstances. They can really guide you based on the state in which you're operating your business, based on the you know specifics of your business, it is worth that investment to at least have that consultation with them. Even though you may not be able to invest in maybe some of the things that they recommend that you invest in, at least you are educated and you're informed.
0: Let's talk yeah. about that for Go just ahead. a second. Reaching out to a lawyer, how do you recommend finding the, like, is there a certain type of lawyer that they should start to look at? Because I'm sure if you just type in like, Lawyer or attorney in Google, you're going to find a lot in the yeah. search results.
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. So, when it comes to lawyers, I mean, it's like any other person that you bring on your team, right? You really want to think of them as a team member. So, how do you get referrals or requests or, you know, find out who, you know, who you're going to hire in other areas? You, you know, word of mouth is a big one obviously. But there are certain websites like UpCounsel that you can search in and you can find lawyers based on different practice areas or, you know, different, you know, issues that you might be having. But just some things that you need to be looking out for when you are looking for a lawyer is a do they have the experience that they say that they you know that you need so sometimes people think lawyers know everything I and mean, it's probably because we act like we know everything but it's a misconception. And lawyers are much like doctors where yeah, we can advise about all laws, but we all have a niche. So just as if, you know, you maybe have a heart condition, you go to a cardiologist, you know, you're not going to go to a foot doctor, it's the same, you know, you're not going to go to a divorce attorney, clearly, if you want, you know, you're starting a business. So really inquire and find out, you know, does this person have experience advising businesses like yours? And just, you know, just kind of get that interview them, you know, don't be afraid to talk to them and see, are they the right fit for you? Well,
0: here's a great, um, here's a great question. Yeah. Here. And you know, I'm good- going to keep interrupting you cuz i have a million questions. Go for it. <laughs> so like a business, you know, someone who's niched into business, but is there do you feel like having an online business, which most of our listeners have, is different enough that it's almost a niche within a niche?
1: I do. I do think so, because at least from my interactions with clients and, you know, folks that I speak to, you know, they do feel like oftentimes when they go to a lawyer, they feel misunderstood or just they can't relate. And I do think that if you can find somebody who understands this world that, like I say, that you and I live in, you know, online, online business niche, even better. Yeah, if it's there are more and more of those kinds of folks and lawyers out there who are working in this niche. What so would you, I would recommend it. What, what
0: would yeah. you say are some things that make the type of businesses that you and I have, like, you know, digital, online and consulting and coaching, what makes that different or unique that we should be paying attention to when we talk about this through the lens and the, the context of yeah. uh, legal?
1: Yeah, well, I think that so much of it is, first of all, your biggest asset is your content. So it's not like those are our widgets, right? Um, We're not manufacturing products necessarily. You know, sometimes, you know, some people are selling services, but for the most part, we are putting our intellectual property online and profiting from it. And so you want to protect that. So things around intellectual property, things around, you know, digital, the laws in the digital space, which are constantly evolving and trying to catch up with the technology And then also being online, you are being exposed to, in theory, and you're being subject to the laws of anybody who can reach you, right? It's not always necessarily where you're at, but in theory, you're now exposing your audience to the world. Whereas, you know, if you were just running a mom and pop shop down the street, you're basically your liability was pretty much exposed to whoever came into your shop. Mm -hmm. So those are some of the things that you want to start thinking about is how do I start protecting my content? I'm making claims. I'm putting my stuff out there. I'm advertising. That's another big one. You know, with the FTC, the claims we're making as we're advertising and running Facebook ads, you know, the promises we're making when we say, Hey, take our course. You're going to learn this or you're going to get these results. Those are the types of things that tend to come up a lot in this online business niche space world.
0: Okay. So <laughs> let's talk about intellectual property for a moment and protecting ourselves there. Is this something that we need a lawyer for? Is this something that we could just like go to legal zoom for? How could we take the right steps to do that?
1: Yeah. So that's, I mean, there's a lot in that question in terms of unpacking it, you know, intellectual property and things like copyrights and trademarks. I'm happy to talk about what those are. In theory, those are pretty much Like you don't really need to do anything to protect it. Like the law kind of protects it once you create a creative work. You know, like once, James, you create your launch videos. Technically, it's fixed to tangible format. Like you are technically protected by copyright. However, there are steps that you can take, such as registering that work with a copyright office, or you would say you have a trademark, you know, registering that trademark with the USPTO that will give you added benefits and insurance you know, basically insurance should somebody later down the road come and infringe on that intellectual property. And as to that, you know, no, you don't need a lawyer who can file this paperwork for you. You can do it yourself. However, this goes you know, down to, is this something you really want to be doing and spending your time on? And there is a learning curve, you know, it's not the most, it's the government, it's not the most user-friendly process. So, you know, that's something that you want to consider. Is this really worth my time educating myself on to do Or is it better that I just I'm the person who assesses what needs to get done and finds the right people to do it? And in terms of just like your intellectual property, you know, we always think about protecting our content, which is very important because like I said, it is an asset. However, you also want to be careful that you're not infringing on somebody else's content. So whether it's, you know, photos that you're taking off the internet and putting in your blog post, or it's somebody's trademark, you know, so somebody maybe has a registered trademark for that particular class of goods or services, and you come along and now you, you know, you're like, Oh, well, the social media handle is available or the domain name is available. You know, that is not how you determine whether or not that name is available. So you want to think of it. It's in two ways. It's kind of like a sword and a shield. So you got to think about how am I protecting my content, but how am I protecting myself from potential claims down the road that I have infringed on somebody else's content? Does that make
0: sense? It makes sense. I think it's getting so much tougher because with so many people on the internet, like everyone's got a name, everyone's got their yeah. thing. Like, you're like, wow. It's almost like, to me, sometimes it feels like stepping on them through a minefield. You're like, oh, that's, ta- oh, that's someone else's Oh, This is, this is someone else's. So I think that also makes this more important because I think it's very easy to do it unintentionally to just use a word yeah. and be like, well, that concept's already been trademarked. Yeah. We've gone through this website before my team and I, what is the website? Do you know that people can go to, to check registered trademarks? or copyright. Yeah,
1: if you go to the USPTO.gov and then they have a database where you could do a quick search, a basic word search essentially, to see if that name is available. And I'm totally nerdy, I will actually like actually search to see like what names like Beyonce owns and like the Kardashians <laughs> own Amazing. and like Trump owns. Like yeah, it's just so fun to I mean, kind of nerdy fun to, to like see what people are actually trademarking and, you know, kind of where they're looking to start creating products and things like that. So anybody can go on there and do a quick search just to see if a name is available. And if it is, if it it isn't, you know, what is that name being, you know, registered for under what specific service or type of good. So you can kind of start doing the research on your own. And and that URL
0: again is USPTO.gov? Yes. Perfect. So it's the
1: US Patent and Trademark Office.
0: Beautiful, beautiful. Okay, so I want to go further down the intellectual property route for just a moment. What would you advise someone to do, especially if in the first year or two, if they've taken the appropriate actions to create intellectual property and register it, and they find a clear, deliberate, whatever you'd call it, theft or plagiarism of that intellectual property, can you offer advice or suggestions on what are their first (laughs) steps?
1: Yeah. I mean, so once you have intellectual property. And especially if if it's registered, let's say you have a trademark that's been registered. It is part of your responsibility to enforce your trademark rights, because if you don't enforce it and over time it becomes kind of part of the modern lexicon, you know, Kleenex is a great example. That was a trademark. That was, you know, that's not, that was a word that they made up. And over time, you know, we've been using it over and over that it's kind of lost its association with this particular brand of tissue paper. We just refer to it all the time. So yes, it is important if you see people utilizing your content without your permission or utilizing your name, you do want to reach out to them. And it usually takes the form of a cease and desist letter, basically letting the person know, hey, this is my intellectual property. You are using it without my permission. Please stop using it or you can make some other solutions such as, you know, if you don't stop using it by a certain point, you know, I'm going to take legal action against you or you've been, you know, you can work with your lawyer on the best approach for that. Mm -hmm. However, it's you really do want to, as things come to your attention, you do want to start basically letting people know that you can't use this stuff without my permission and then see where that takes them. Usually that's enough to get people to stop using it, but there's always the potential that the person might ignore you, might contest the fact that it is your intellectual property. And so then you just start... the solutions or the steps after that are just going to vary based on the circumstances.
0: Got it. Quick question, kind of going off a tangent from that. We're not alone in the experiences we've had. I know a lot of my inner circle members have dealt with this, other customers, just peers in the industry where people that seem very, you know, hidden who might be in different countries, but they're very like, you know, you don't know who they are. You don't know where they are. They could be overseas are in some way trying to leverage our content or, you know, it's pretty shady gray area. Do you feel like there's anything that can be done there with someone that could just be like in a completely different country?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And unfortunately I've seen that happen quite a bit with clients where, you know, somebody takes your course or alleges to be selling your course for half the price, or, you know, it's kind of, I mean, it's an interesting, it's an interesting world that those people operate in. But however, I do see it happening more and more. And so there are some steps that you can take, obviously. Well, let's first talk about the steps. Some of the things are, you know, with the DMCA takedown notices. So any hosting online service provider or hosting provider that is hosting that content. So let's say there is a website, like a fake website that they've created, and they're selling your course you can contact the hosting provider and through a dmca takedown notice let them know that your copyright and your intellectual property is being infringed upon and to request that they have that content removed so that kind of gets that process going you can also do that with major search engines such as google or you know yahoo or bing you know so that at least if they're searching with those search terms of let's say your course name it's not being found in search results so Some of it is – it's tough because the – when it comes from like the cybersecurity type of things, you know, the technology that they're utilizing, these hackers are so sophisticated. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes there's layers upon layers upon layers of masking and bots and things like that. So finding the source can be difficult. You know, so sometimes it's a question of, you know, you've got this wound. We just want to stop the bleeding right now. We just want to cut the ties so that at least people aren't getting to those websites. And then there's obviously tools or steps that you can take place with the government and reporting it you can file what's called an IC3 complaint you can file you know complaints with the FTC not sure how far those can get you obviously the FBI and the FTC are pretty busy <laughs> but it's stuff that you know you start kind of notifying them of those instances and if they feel that it is you know if they want to investigate it they can so there are things that you can do from that end. Finding the person and trying to put a stop on it can prove to be difficult, unfortunately, yeah. just given the sophistication of technology nowadays.
0: Well, I'd love to, this is great. And I'd love to share our experience of this. We have a process in place where we deploy the DMCA and it seems to work rather effectively, but it does feel like you're playing a game of whack-a-mole where the yeah <laughs> the moment you hit one down, two more pop up. Yeah. And so like, you know, the way we just developed it is like there are you know, Google alerts for our stuff out there and someone on our team who just knows what the steps to take are. And it happens pretty quickly where it gets taken down and stuff, which is really nice. But I want to talk about the mindset. I want to throw that out there because I know some people that freak out fast when they see their intellectual being sold at one tenth of the price somewhere on the internet. And I'd like to just share a little bit about my mindset because first of all, the first thing is it never really bothers me. I've never gone to a place where, oh my gosh, all my customers are going to get it there. Why would they buy? I'm losing. I'm bleeding money. That's where I go. Because first of all, I don't believe that. I believe, first of all, with my courses and with anybody else selling courses, that the first thing we always say is that the transformation is in the transaction. There's a huge irony. It's like a big cosmic joke that I have to myself that all these people trying to get something for free that should be paid, they're not actually going to get the value that they would have if they paid for it, especially if it's a product on how to sell your own stuff. Like no one, like no <laughs> one that does this gets the huge irony there. that's it's like, yeah. hey, I want to <laughs> learn how to sell my my intellectual property. Let me go steal someone else's. Hello. I love
1: that. That's, <laughs> like, that's a
0: good point. <laughs> you know, so like to, that to me is just like, listen, the people that I know. Who truly need this and are truly going to make a difference are going to go through the right channels to find it. And plus, the other people that are going to find it for free are really cheap. We're never going to pay for it in the first place. So I'm very like cool, calm, and collected about it. Here's where my one qualm is, and this is why it's important that you have these processes set up. Not because out of a fear that you're going to be losing all this money, but rather what I hate, and this happens, is when one of your customers or subscribers stumbles upon it. Someone that has paid for it sees it for sale somewhere else. That's not a good experience. You know, if you bought, you know, something really nice and then you found out they're selling it half price somewhere else, you know, that doesn't leave a good taste in any customer, any buyer's mouth. So that's why it's important to have this process in place. That's the one thing that always hooks me. But it's never coming from this like fear or lack mindset. And so I just wanted to throw that out for people. And then we do the DMCA and it just it works. It's effective. So play around with it. Where can someone get this? Should they just go to a lawyer and have it drafted up or is this something we can...
1: Yeah, I mean, you could probably do it yourself if you're again a DIYer and just want to figure it out. Whatever hosting provider it is, you know, let's say it's a certain online service provider, you usually that you can go to kind of like their terms of service or something. You know, you got to read the fine print. <laughs> yeah. Sorry guys, but it's usually in there somewhere where you can file a DMCA takedown notice, and it'll outline what information you need to provide and whatnot. Sometimes it takes a little bit of investigation because, like I said, you might think that a certain company is the hosting provider but it's actually masked and there's another company that they're actually running it through so you have to kind of wow. do your little investigative work there but I do want to talk about what you said with the mindset I really agree with you you know it's, it's kind of interesting that I do this kind of work because I come from a place of like you know, there's enough to go around. You know, you just focus on creating your work, you know, the right people will be attracted to you. And so I do think that it's it's kind of a fine balance of you want to, you know, defend your work and kind of protect it, but you can't spend all of your time trying to chase these people down because that is gonna be such a drain on your energy. Yes. And just you know, it's, it's just it's not a good use of your energy. And I do have to say that the people who have come to me where they've had these problems it's their audience that alerted them to it yes. which goes to show you that if you can build that solid relationship with your audience they are out there they're looking out for you and they know the difference and they will stand up for you and you know help you out which i think is a huge testament to where you should be putting your energy and, and your focus
0: let's just hit that a little deeper so people really get that like when you have a relationship just like with someone in your family just like a good friend, things can happen outside of that. And that relationship, if it's pure and if it's strong, that person goes to bat for you, that person trusts you, that person has your best interests at heart. And that's ultimately, if you're you know, an, a personality brand, that's ultimately your number one priority is where is the relationship that I'm creating, the rapport, the connection that can never be faked, that can never be taken from you, that can never be ripped off. That's the huge joke is that there, any of these scammers that maybe some of us get a little afraid or frustrated by, they cannot steal your connection. Like just think of someone that loves you in your life. Could anyone come in and really be an imposter and pretend to be you enough that that love would be replaced? It's just, you can't. So no one can get on this podcast and pretend to be me and they keep thinking it's me, you know. So that connection to me has always been the most important. Don't forget that.
1: Yeah. And the steps that you do take to protect yourself, think of it from that place. It's like I'm trying to protect this relationship that I have with my audience. Not yes. so much. Oh, my gosh, they're going to be taking all my content. I'm going to, you know, yes. never may sell this course again. It's just what do I do just to protect my audience from these people? And then that's when you take these steps that you can and then you move on. You know, you do what you can and then you move on to building You know, bigger and better things with your audience.
0: Absolutely. Okay. So listen, we went down a little rabbit hole. We went down some tangents (laughs) on, you know, tangent lane. We're going to bring back to that original question. I want to see if there's anything else there. The original question is, what are the things that someone in their first year to a business should be mindful of in the arena of law and legal and protecting yourself? First thing we really talked about was intellectual property. As you're creating, are you protecting yourself? And Are you taking the right steps if anyone's trying to, you know, take your stuff away from you? Is there anything else that we should be looking at in that first year or two?
1: Yeah. So I'm a big, big fangirl of contracts, especially if you are a service provider, even if you're selling products, but especially the folks in the services industry, because it can be, it's not as clear sometimes, you know, that I sold, you know, X widget to you and you got it and I got the money in return. So I'm a big fan of getting a solid contract in place between you and your clients. And so I know there are people who don't have contracts at all, which always makes me really nervous because, you know, they think every Everybody's been so nice. I've been working with friends and whatnot. But I hate to say it that unfortunately, you know, most people are going to protect themselves and do what they need to do to cover themselves if there is a conflict. And having something written down, having that document that you can reference, having that document you can present to a judge if you have to go to court is so valuable. And I mean, contracts have so many other benefits as well, of it, like educating your client about the process, you know, your services and how it all unfolds. There's just so many great benefits that I really, really encourage people to get your hands on a contract that is really working for you in your business, you know, just please, please, please have a contract. <laughs> this is great. So that's
0: yeah. yeah. And, and so what are hmm, how do I want to ask this first question? Like what are some of the biggest things that are happening when a contract is not in place? Like what are the biggest problems that happen that or worst case scenarios, just so we can like really motivate people? Why contract? Yeah.
1: So, I mean, I've heard so many stories, you know, I've been witness to it myself where, you know, you do work, you know, maybe you've been doing work, somebody for a long time, they've always paid you. And then all of a sudden they stop paying you. And you're like, wait a minute, you know, what, what happened? And so something's gone wrong, you take them to court. And the first thing that that judge wants to see, let's say you're in small claims court, most people will probably be in small claims court, they want to see a contract. And so although oral contracts can be valid, a judge really wants to see it on in, writing. And so it's unfortunate. So you can present all this other evidence and say, but judge, you know, I've done this work for them in the past. Like here are all these emails, whatever, It's not to say that that stuff is not important and won't weigh into a judge's decision, but that contract really provides that intention of the parties of what it is that they really agreed to. So that to me is the worst case scenario of, you know, you want to make sure you get paid for the work that you do. You're spending time, you know, you're building these relationships, you want to get compensated for it. And if it's something as simple as having something in writing and a piece of paper, to me, it's such a no brainer. Like, why wouldn't you incorporate that as part of your process for the, you know, maybe that, 1% chance that it happens, but when it happens, it's so draining and it's so frustrating when you come back home from, you know, from the courthouse and the judge has ruled against you and said, no, sorry, you just did four or $5,000 of work for free. Essentially that really stings. And I would hate for people to experience that.
0: Yeah. I think the very first business lesson that my father instilled to in me, even just as a young kid was always get it in writing. And I loved his reasoning why he says, even if it's your best friend, even if it's a family member, because then if anything goes awry, you get to blame the contract, not the person. And I'm like, wow, because it's, you know, because like the first deals you make when you're younger, especially if you're like a young entrepreneur is like usually people you're like, you go into business with your best friend or, you know, your brother or sister, you know, the neighbor down the street or something. So you're like, Oh no, you know, we're friends. We're tight. We're clear. Like I don't want to make it all businessy official, that kind of fool. And my dad was like, no, that it's the opposite. Like, yeah, it, it's never a, he said, she said thing. Now it's, it's all super clear. There's a, a new relationship that's created based on mutual respect and you know, it's all just official and man, that's just, it's so important. And every time yeah. I haven't had one in place in that every time I haven't <laughs> had something in place, something has gone wrong. Yeah. So
1: you have to realize you're dealing with human beings, you know, and it's human behavior and it's, we're not robots. Right. So it's, and I always say contracts are, they're just like dating. Like there's that first, you know, the beginning you're dating, you're like all just, you know, rainbows and butterflies and unicorns. This person seems so great. You're so excited, but then, you know, things happen, right? And you have to always think about the end. You have to think about the breakup, even if it, it may not happen, but you want to think about it. Well, what happens if, you know, one person wants to leave this relationship. What happens if we get into a conflict? Do you want to think those things out and then have that agreed to in advance? So kind of like a prenup, right? you want to think about it so that God forbid, if you're in a situation where you're going through a breakup, you don't have to worry about agreeing to anything. It's there, it's on paper. And then that you can also, like you said, defer it to you know, a third party, maybe it's a judge, maybe it's a mediator and let them make the decision. And you take all of that emotion out of it. So I agree with your dad a hundred percent. I think it's even more important to have it in writing when you're going into business with someone, you know,
0: Yeah, I even had Chelsea sign a contract on our very first date. No, I'm just What kidding. did it say? Oh, okay. Totally oh, no, no. <laughs> no my,
1: my husband just had me sign a contract where we're trying to like eat healthier and like work out. And so he's like, I'm going to write a contract for you. And so he yes. typed it out because he knew that would get me to that's commit. Your language, so, see, that's
0: your my... love language, contracts. It's, it's
1: like, um, do you watch Big Bang Theory with Sheldon? I don't,
0: I don't. Everyone asks me and I'm like, no, I'm probably the only person that hasn't. <laughs>
1: Anyway, he has like roommate agreements and like he has a, a relationship agreement with his girlfriend. And yes. so anyway, I'm I'm all about the contracts. Give me some fine print. I love it.
0: For the record, <laughs> I did not make Chelsea sign a contract on our first or any uh, subsequent dates.
1: Subsequent dates. Okay. Good to know.
0: So, yes. Okay. So that's crucial. Anything else for someone in the first, you know, year or two of business that they can really just protect themselves more or keep an eye out for.
1: Yeah, and so I'm not talking about all the business entity stuff like setting yourself up as an LLC because I feel like that's pretty straightforward for most people. Um it's like usually the first thing they think of when they want to start a business is like got to become an LLC. Mm-hmm. But one other thing that I would just kind of have your like your radar on is for when you start hiring. The laws about hiring very a lot from state to state, but the whole conversation around, do you categorize somebody as an independent contractor versus an employee is an important thing you need to be paying attention to when you're at that point. So just kind of a little alarm that should go off. Okay. I'm ready to hire There's something about independent contractors and employees I need to, like, learn more about. Either you talk to a lawyer, you do your research, you know, maybe you go down to a local, like, your city or county might have a SCORE office or, you know, a small business SBA office. Like, just get the information you need to um, make sure that you're properly classifying folks. Because if you improperly classify somebody, you know, you classify them as an independent contractor when a government agency believes that they should have been classified as an employee, it could end up costing you a lot in terms of back taxes, payroll taxes, fines and penalties. And it can be an expensive mistake to make. And so we want to make sure that you're doing that with eyes wide open.
0: That's a huge one. And I couldn't stress upon that enough. In fact, I would see someone who's got a team. I think that's the number one mistake I'm seeing them make. And I just think that's going to catch up to you if you're not mindful. And so, you know, I'm not qualified to give any advice here. So don't listen to what I'm about to say. But what we were given as some advice is that if this person, if by them working with you, if you were to let them go, if they had no other sources of employment, they are an employee versus if someone is a, you know, let's say a graphic designer and they're working with 10 other clients and you decide to no longer use them anymore, that would much more be a freelance contractor. Is that an accurate assessment that we can kind of throw it's out a, there? A rough...
1: It's a good way of thinking about it. Essentially, and again, the test varies from state to state, yes. from agency to agency. There's multi-factors. There's not one factor that's determinative. It's just like really gray. And that's, We need to talk about why everything is so great with the law and how frustrating it can be as a business owner. (laughs) Because the one number one answer you're going to get from a lawyer is it depends, which is so frustrating. But generally the way it works is an independent contractor is really in A business for themselves. So they are, whether they're a graphic designer, whatever they do, but they are running their own shop. And with that comes, you know, the responsibility, they have their own tools. They have, you know, they determine, they have complete discretion over how they do their work all of those things, you know, you, as the person who's hiring, you don't really tell them how to do their work. You know, they have expenses, they have profits, they, they, they they have an interest in all of that, you know, am I going to make a profit this month or not? So The more that person is kind of on that end of the spectrum of they have a lot of direction over their work, that discretion, they're really running their own shop, the more it is that this person's an independent contractor. And then obviously on the other end is the employee where, you know, you tell them what to do. They show up, you know, all that stuff. And but then there's this big gap in the middle. Right. And there's so many different variations. So that's kind of the question you want to start thinking about. Is this person really, truly? Like directing the way in which they do their work? Are they really truly in business for themselves where they have these different clients? That's the right approach to really answer this question. But then again, there's so many factors. So um,
0: the big takeaway yeah. though is to be mindful that this is a thing. That you don't just, you know, throw a dart against the wall and say, ah we'll call him a freelance contractor. Yeah, you need to... Or
1: just to say, yeah, or just to say, now I'm interrupting. Sorry, James. To say, well, everybody else in the industry is doing it this way. You know, just because everybody else is doing it that way doesn't mean it's right. So just a little, you know.
0: Any um, input while we stay on this for just a moment longer uh, that you have on hiring? Because, you know, there's also the virtual thing. So do you have input or whatever, advice, counsel on a W-2 in different states.
1: Oh, gosh. That's probably more of a... You mean in terms of, like, the tax stuff? Or do you mean in terms
0: uh, of hiring? I'm not trying to lead you, but I know in our experience, when we have a W-2 out of state, because the laws are different state to state, it makes things, like, so much more, like, exponentially complicated for us. So we, Uh we stopped that. Is that something that you would recommend, encourage, or are you like, it's just, it's just a thing and maybe it depends on state or I don't know. I'm just looking for any of your perspective on that.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's probably best to. At that point, yeah, if you're going to be hiring people out of state, you want to talk to a lawyer in that state about the practices, you know, for hiring employees just to make sure that you're in compliance. And like you said, it can be kind of difficult and complicated. And so sometimes maybe it's better just to keep it local and easy when you're hiring employees. You know, when it comes to independent contractors, again, if they're truly independent contractors, it really, you know, I don't know if it should really matter where they're located, you know, in the states because they're running a business. Right, and you're contracting their services, so
0: okay, they got it. That's
1: I, what I have to say. On no, that. Yeah,
0: and I, I mean, I agree, that's what our experience has totally been. I'm gonna throw one other question on the hiring side, and I don't know if you have the answer to this. That's okay, you're allowed to say, I don't know on things. Like you no, said, no, I can't.
1: I'm a lawyer, I'm I, <laughs> I know, know everything. everything.
0: <laughs> uh, you wouldn't know if we paused and googled this. That's the thing, our listeners wouldn't oh. know, <laughs> but I'm that's sure the, you wouldn't have to. The- but this is a question I get all the time, I always say, you know seek someone who has the answer. I'm not certified to answer these questions. But, you know, I've always encouraged from the get go, especially in that first, second year, that there are huge opportunities outsourcing, delegating overseas, you can find virtual assistants, you know, places like the Philippines for just a couple dollars an hour. And that's how I got started. What advice would you have? Like, how does that need to get, you know, structured or reported to protect ourselves? Like, is that a W2 or a, you know, freelance, like, do you have any insight or advice for us in that department?
1: You know, this stuff kind of deals with like taxes and things and I would re- i'm not trying to punt it but I know there are some special rules around that when you're hiring people outside of the country and I just I am not the person to be talking about it but that's the kind of stuff again when it comes down to you know when you get to this point you want a good cPA or a tax advisor on your team as well mm. who could advise you about kind of the rules and the laws and how to report those things yeah yeah so unfortunately I don't know the exact answer
0: boom I stopped yet. No, I kind of knew that it was, I mean, there's like that. <laughs> yeah, right? But I appreciate that. Okay. I want to go back for a second. Cause you really quickly went over entity and I just wanted to ask one question there. Yeah. Is it best practice if someone's like, I'm quitting my job tomorrow and I'm starting my business. Is that something that you suggest? Like, this is the very first thing that you should do is get the entity in place, get that all set up even before you think about doing a single thing? Or can you like, hey, you know what, let me just like see if I can get a client or two before I really make this official?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And so generally speaking, I am of the camp, like do not rush to become an LLC because it makes you feel official and you see everybody else doing it. It's a very personal decision. And I am of the camp of like, you know, If depending on your risk portfolio, I guess for lack of a better word, depending on the line of business you're in, depending on the assets you potentially have at stake, just all those different things. I'm happy to walk through all the questions that I like to ask clients. Is there a really high risk of some sort of liability here? And if, you know, let's say you're a graphic designer, you're going to take on a few freelance jobs doing logos and brochures for people like in my book, that doesn't feel like a very high risk thing. Mm -hmm. And so in that situation, I'm probably comfortable with you just being a sole proprietor you know, kind of feeling it out, seeing if, you know, this is something you want to do before you make the investment, both the financial investment, but also just the administrative burden of becoming an LLC or a corporation. It's something that I always say, like, it's a personal decision, but it's also something you can revisit later on down the road. So you might want to give yourself a timeline and say, you know, I'm going to give myself six months, and then I'm going to revisit. Is this something I'm interested in continuing with? And then if so, then you determine do I, what, what what entity should I change to be. But one thing I would say is. You do want to, regardless of whether you you say I'm going to become a sole proprietor or I'm going to become a LLC or corporation or whatnot, one thing you do want to do is just do research on what the rules are to starting a business in your state and in your county and in your city, because there may be some requirements for filings, you know, for certain licenses or fictitious business name applications and things like that. So you do want to do that kind of like research just to make sure you are in compliance with those rules. But the whole conversation around what entity do I need to be. It's something that I don't think you need to do day one, unless your risk in your business is so extreme, or there's some certain circumstances like you are taking on investors and they require you to be an LLC, or you are, you know, planning to sell it off right away, you know, or whatever it is you might want to, or maybe financially or tax wise, there might be certain benefits to be a certain entity. But for most people that I think you and I work with, I think starting off as a sole proprietor and then revisiting that later on down the road is a good approach.
0: Okay, good. Awesome. Yeah, And I appreciate that because it also gives people like a jumping off point of like what they can start searching. Like, I don't think everyone realized like, Oh, I should probably search the state and county level. Like what are the requirements for how to start a business the right way? So I'm in <laughs> compliance from day one. I, I think that stuff is smart. and And that's what this is about folks. It's you know, I think we're a very marketing heavy type of business. So it's like very easy to put the marketing hat on at all times. But I think this is about being a smart business owner and putting the business owner hat on for a moment and just being wise. And so I just appreciate this. And Annette, you've just been so knowledgeable and giving on this. I feel like we could talk about this for hours. So what's one last either tip, piece of advice, action item or something that you could share with our listeners at maybe even any level of business, but someone who is more of an online authority, maybe they're a coach or a course creator or an author that could really help them at any stage.
1: Yeah. I don't know if I could just pick one thing because clearly I love to talk a lot, (laughs) but I had to pick I think a lot of entrepreneurs, we get caught in what I call like the DIY epidemic. You know, we're so used to bootstrapping, doing so much of it ourselves because we can or we just, you know, for whatever different reason. And I think there has to come a time in your business where you evolve from that. And you need to start thinking about... Whether it's legal, whether it's accounting, whatever it is, you can't do it yourself, and you can't do it all yourself. Just because a you don't have the time, it may not be obviously the most efficient use of your resources. But also, your that is not your job. And so, I really want to encourage people to take the time to build those relationships and make those investments up front, so that you can really focus on what it is you're supposed to be doing, um, where where you know where your zone of genius is, and let people. come on board to help you. And so, yeah, I would just say just build your team and don't wait until the problem has arrived to start getting help because oftentimes it's too late. So Yes.
0: yes, that is not the time to start doing this. Just be wise. Don't be doing this out of fear, but just be doing it out of the pride that you know that you're smart and you're being smart about all of this. It's just so important. These are not the things we were taught in school. We're not, that's like, we're not taught how to run a business in school. And I mean, unless you go to business school, but you know, growing up. So you just, I mean, this is all the stuff I was like, wow, no one's going to tell you this unless you start looking for answers and asking the right questions. And if anything, if all this episode did is get you to start asking a few more great questions, then I think we've done our job. But I also want, you know, we've just opened the door and I want to continue to invite you guys to walk through it. So Annette, where can we learn more about what you do so that we can stay informed?
1: That's, thank you. Yeah, over on my website is where you can find all the good legal goodness, and that's AnnetteStepanian.com. It's a little bit of a tongue twister there, <laughs> but maybe we can add it to the show notes for folks. So um,
0: it'll be it'll be yeah. linked up for you guys, so you can just click on that link in the show notes and go straight there.
1: I also have a podcast called Office Talk with Annette Stepanian where I answer frequently asked questions about the law and business and also interview other creative entrepreneurs and just really get you the information you need to you know, start and grow your business in a way that's fulfilling and
0: profitable. Awesome. We'll link that up as well. And anytime you want to have me on there, Annette boy, I'm just putting you on the spot.
1: (laughs) Oh my uh, gosh, I would love to. We should just continue recording continue for another (laughs)
0: hour and see what comes up. I love it. But that's Office (laughs) Talk. That's Annette's podcast. Are you loving doing the podcast, by the way?
1: I love it. I feel like I have finally found a form of content creation that I truly enjoy. I mean, I remember when I first started, I was like, "Ugh, I have to write another blog post. But I love, love, love doing a podcast.
0: Love talking. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, I well, clearly well, i don't know what took me so long to figure that, that one out
0: so great <laughs> i couldn't agree more we love the podcast as well so thank you so much annette and her podcast office talk annette thank you so much i so appreciate you taking the time being here and sharing all of this knowledge that you probably spent years and a lot of money yes i'm still
1: it. paying for it
0: still <laughs> paying for it and we just got it for free so thank you <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. Go visit com and check out her podcast as well to learn more about Annette and how we can be smart business owners, how we can protect ourselves, how we can just be on top of everything and not be reactive in our business, not responding after the fact when there has been the quote unquote break in, but to Be proactive. Thank you so much. We'll talk to you soon. For 10 years now, I've made my living selling digital courses, membership subscriptions, and group coaching. I've been able to make millions of dollars. Yet, even better, I've been able to help thousands upon thousands of students with my training. Yet, I've never taught my system on how to actually get started, how to choose the right niche, the right product, the right tools, and the right plan until now the information marketing industry is booming now more than ever and if you've been sitting on the sidelines waiting to get in now is your time for the next eight weeks i'm going to be delivering a brand new training course live showing exactly how to get started and get profitable even if you have no list no product or no idea And the best part is it's 100% free. All you have to do is request an invite to my private Facebook group. Every week, I'll broadcast a live in-depth training with homework, action items, and of course, Q&A. So to request access to my private group now and join the training absolutely free, simply visit www.jameswedmore.com forward slash free. That's www.jameswedmore.com forward slash free. And I'll see you there.